Hey guys, before we dive into today's episode of Happy, Sad, Confused, I've got a special message for you about a film that is very relevant to today's show, in fact. The movie I'm talking about is Boyhood, the best-reviewed film of 2014, and I have good news. It is now available to buy on digital HD before you can own it on Blu-ray. This is, of course, from acclaimed writer-director Richard Linklater. It follows the same actors, as you may have heard, over 12 years to tell the groundbreaking coming-of-age story like no one has ever done in film history. Stars Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke in Golden Globe-nominated roles, and Boyhood is also nominated for Best Picture Drama and Best Director. So buy it today from Paramount Pictures. It's rated R. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. We are back after a little holiday respite. I hope you guys took some time to eat as much food as I did, spend some time with the family, and watch a whole lot of TV and movies. That's basically what sums up the last couple weeks for me. I do apologize. I try to put out an episode a week, and my plan was to try to crank on through the holidays, but what are you going to do? Life got in the way. But the good news is, guys, um, we're back. It's uh, it's past the first of the year, which means we have a slew of awesome guests coming up on future episodes of Happy, Sad, Confused, and that begins right here, right now, with a gentleman by the name of Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke has had an amazing career that is... It's had its ups and downs, I guess, but really it's actually been remarkably consistent. If you look at the filmography, it's remarkable to see the kinds of films he's made, the kinds of filmmakers he's he's worked with, not to mention all the theater that he's done uh, here in New York City. Right now, Ethan is definitely having a moment thanks to what's really become a phenomenon, you know, since it premiered about a year ago now in Sundance, and we talk about this a little bit, Boyhood has been an obsession for film critics and now audiences alike. If you've seen Boyhood, you know what I'm talking about. This is the famous 12 years in the making Richard Linklater movie that stars Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette, as well as Eller Coltrane, who is really the centerpiece of the story. Ethan's phenomenal in it, and he is very, very likely to get an Oscar nomination, which would be, uh, I think, his second for acting. He was nominated for Training Day. He's been nominated twice before for screenwriting for the Before series, uh, obviously another collaboration with Richard Linklater. He came on the podcast. We taped this right before the holidays to talk about a great number of things, including Boyhood, including Predestination, which is a new kind of sci-fi thriller that is about to open, as well as a documentary that Ethan has directed called Seymour. Seek that out. Seek all these films out. They are all very unique, very different, uh, but they share the man of the hour today, uh, that is Mr. Ethan Hawke. We cover a lot of ground in this one. Ethan is an exceptional uh, talker, a big film geek like myself, and I, I really enjoyed uh, just shooting the shit with him for a while, uh, including a little, uh, little Doctor Strange talk. And for context, we talk about it a little bit later on, but Ethan's name was in the mix Apparently, it seemed when Scott Derrickson signed on to direct Doctor Strange a few months back. Derrickson, of course, directed Ethan in Sinister. And after that happened, I interviewed Ethan and I brought up, hey, what do you think about Doctor Strange? Some people have mentioned you. And from there, uh, very soon after that we released that, that video, it actually kind of took a life of its own. And Ethan was apparently in the mix to be Doctor Strange. And as you'll hear in this conversation, 
Ethan basically confirms that um, that weird little interview actually did help gain him some momentum and almost got him the part. In the end, of course, it's Benedict Cumberbatch, and no one can quarrel with that choice, but it's kind of crazy to think how these little interviews can somehow sometimes actually affect the business of Hollywood. But anyway, I'm so happy we're back with another episode of Happy Second Fused. I hope you guys are excited for this one, and tune in next week. I don't want to reveal who we're, we're talking to, but um, if all goes going to plan, this is going to be another big career highlight for me and another uh, another film acting hero and someone that's very much in the moment right now. But enough said about next week. Right now, it's Ethan Hawke. As always, hit me up on Twitter, guys. Joshua Horowitz is my Twitter handle. Go over to wolfpop.com and let us know what you're thinking on the forums. And in the meantime, enjoy this conversation with Ethan Hawke. How you been, man? How's it going? Really well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Busy but good. It's a it's a fun time of year to talk about some good movies. Talk to some cool people. Sexual escort, cash only. <laughs> Just so you know, you're not the only person to do stupid shit with me. Michael Shannon has done some insane, <laughs> insane bits with I me. I love Michael Shannon. Oh my god, he's the man. He's so cool. He's amazing. This is distracting me. Uh, shall we get going? You yeah, want to roll we for real? Let's do it. All right. This is this is for real now. Mr. Ethan Hawke has entered my office. Thanks for uh, joining me today, yeah, buddy. My pleasure. It's always good to see you, man. Now, are we? Um, Am I being filmed right now? No. Oh, this is only in my brain. So like, I can relax. But you're just recording this. I'm just recording this via audio. Oh, and actually, I'm going to rec- I'm going to record this back up. I've learned my lesson. I had Michael, yes. not the name drop, but I had Michael Sarah in here on a previous podcast, and I stupidly only recorded on one device, and and you lost it. I lost a part of it. It was pretty sad. So we're going to back this up now for posterity. Okay. Ethan okay. Hawke has joined me. Um, I'm here. How are you doing? What are you up to? Are you uh, in the middle of stuff right now? What's going on? Uh, what did I do today? Um, let's see. I woke up this morning, took a couple kids to school. I met my 16-year-old. Your friend. own kids, not own. just random yeah, kids. Just, you know, I went to the bus and I said, hey, kids, <laughs> don't take the bus today. Today, um, no. I took my kids to school. Then what did I do? Then I actually went to do ADR, you know, to redo yeah. the sound of a movie that um, I made earlier this year. And it was a technology nightmare. They were connecting through Spain. It was literally, I sat there for three hours and we recorded three lines. This is not and supposed to happen up. in 2014. No, the whole thing We're in the future, was, people. Come I on. Know, the whole thing, it was just one of those things that makes you feel like, I may as well be dead. I mean, this is like, <laughs> I'm literally a gerbil in a cage. I'm doing... I'm having computer rage over things that don't matter. <laughs> um, my life is miserable. No, and then... Um, I went and had lunch with a fancy pants producer who wants me to do a Broadway show that I secretly do want to do, and I played hard to get. <laughs> How do you do? So you you just didn't uh, let just, on. You were. I just ask a lot of questions, yeah. you know, and I kind of go, "Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, hmm, I don't know. Yeah, tell me more. And what about this? And you try to and inside. I'm going. You know, I'm already. I'm already doing vocal warm-ups for the show. You Th- know? Does a lot of that happen? The, the quote-unquote taking meetings for films where it's not really an audition, but it is sort of an audition, and what's your attitude about those? Is It happens all the time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this is for a play, so it's a little different, but, I mean, movies are really strange because there are some directors who, uh, you know, it's, it's rare now, but, like, every now and then, the Coen brothers or something... If they really have a lot of clout, you know, they ask you to audition. Right. And so you, you kind of go, why do I have to audition? Don't they know who I am? And then they say, well, it's either you're not going to get the part or you audition. And so you're kind of like, well, all right, I'll audition. And I miss auditioning from 
I mean, when I was younger, it was probably the best acting exercises. The most I ever learned in a period of time was going on seven auditions a week because you would also go on auditions for parts that you were wrong for. Right. So, y- y- were you it, experimenting then? Were you just kind of going for it, or were you kind of like half-assing it? Like, what was your attitude oh, when no, it was I, that? You know, I would I would be all in. Yeah. You know, if, you know, auditions are kind of like dates in a strange way. You know, like you, you have a first period where you're like this may be the best thing that ever. I should play. You know, some part I'm absolutely wrong for. Uh, but so I missed that a little bit. But normally what happens is some director calls you up and they say, or, you know, you hear, they want you to read it. And if you like it, you meet them and have lunch and you talk and you have lunch and you, you know. Do you, do you still have to audition now? I mean, are you open to auditioning at this point? Yeah. I seem to audition. It's extremely rare. And the problem, the last, I've probably been on two auditions in the last decade, right? Both of which I did not get. <laughs> and um, I was terrible. And it's not really fair for these like big shot directors to audition somebody who I've been auditioning forever. Well, you're out of the I'm game. I'm totally out of, that out of game. shape, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And I get all nervous and sweaty and I, my ego flares up. And, you know, I, you know, to hell with two of these cocksuckers think I have to read the goddamn Show them my I- IMDB. Come yeah, on, guys. What the hell? What have I been man? doing this for 30 years for? Yeah, man, come on. <laughs> Picture it in your head. I'm not going to be Here's that. Here's a little imagination, yeah, Mr. Director, man. So every time, my figure is if when they want me to audition, it must mean they either want to humiliate me or I'm obviously wrong for it anyway. Or they, but, right. But then, like, that drama student in me comes out and goes, Oh, too big for your britches now, are you? Right. You know? Right. And then I decide I have to go in and I do a bad job. And <laughs> I don't know what the lesson is there. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, so th- there's always a lot to talk about with you because you, you're the hardest working man in showbiz. Congratulations. Thank we'll you. We'll give you a prize at the end. I know. Um, I wish life worked that way. <laughs> you can take that if you want. I just yeah. got a promotional material for Terrence Howard's new show. It's a gold record for Empire. All right, cool. It's got my name on it, but if you want to just cross it out, that's yeah, all you. And, and that's my prize for being the hardest working man in yeah, show business. exactly. A show I wasn't even in, a gold <laughs> record of which I had nothing to do with. Yeah. That seems kind of appropriate. It's about as real as any of those things are. You right? know how Hollywood works. Yeah. Um, but, you know, obviously, Boyhood, we've been talking about, everyone's been talking about since Sundance. I, I had the privilege of being at that crazy first screening, which was just remarkable. Like that night that must have been just uh, – that's probably one that you, you're always going to think of, I would think, you in know, a career. I think, you know, you never know it, kind of when those things are happening, how important they are. But when I think back about that screening, one of the things that was so remarkable about it is people had heard nothing. Right. I mean, now when people go see the movie, they go, oh, they took 12 years to shoot it. And, yeah. But that night, nobody. I remember the kind of collective gasp in the room as people started understanding that these kids were actually aging in front of their eyes. Yeah. And, uh, and it was late at night. You remember, it wasn't early. The screen started at like 9.15 or something. Yeah. So by the time we were doing that it's Q&A afterwards, yeah. it was past midnight. And, uh, and it, and I remember the feeling in the audience was, well, you know, I remember hearing about that. You know, when you're first working in this, you know, I remember hearing people say, I saw this movie. People who came back from Cannes one year talking about seeing Paris, Texas, mm. and that they'd never seen anything exactly like that movie. And, you know, that movie has gone on to be wildly influential, you know, with yeah. the Ry Cooter score and Shepard and all that. Vim Vendor's stuff and uh, and so I had that feeling when when we 
left. It was strange. IFC, it was kind of thrown together at the last minute, that screen. Remember, it was right. this kind of untitled Richard right. Linkletter project was coming. And, and so there was no real party afterwards to go to. There was this amazing feeling. We had this unbelievable Q&A. You felt this wild electrical buzz. Yeah. And you remember how well Eller carried himself? This kid has never been in a movie before. He's... 18 he years comes old. comes out as a rock star. And he comes just, out and he starts <laughs> saying these profound things start coming out of his mouth about just being a part of anything. Whenever you're a part of a creative act of any kind, that you're a part of what's true in the universe or something. And he, but he didn't sound pretentious. Yeah. He just was like, stuff was fun. But there was no party to go to. And so we all went to this weird hotel and had a party in like Patricia Arquette's room. And it was the ridiculous thing about it was it's a little embarrassing. It was pretty much only people who worked on the movie were at this party. It wasn't normally you're hobnobbing sure. with fabulous people. And and this it was really just us sitting around going, Wow, I think you were really great at that. And, <laughs> no, and you the, were great. <laughs> no, I think you were really great in that. Well, what do you think? Yeah. And then there, then Rick was going, I think it works. You know? And, and he going, ah, Rick, I think you did a good job. Do you think so? Well, after twelve and, years, you're entitled to a little well, we, but when, what was weird about it is none of us were really patting each other on the back. We were thinking that maybe we should be. Like right. we, we were, because there was nobody there who wasn't related to it. We weren't sure. Right. It's so interesting because also in this, you know, in this season, I don't know what to take away from the fact that, for instance, two probably my top two films of the year are Boyhood and Birdman, and, and they're both films that kind of like. You know, after a hundred years of filmmaking, are trying to like experiment with the form, and clearly audiences and, and critics are respond to that. And that's, I mean, knowing your career and knowing what you're into, that's got to be thrilling to you to know that people have that same kind of thirst for something different than the norm. I, I'm in a little shock about it. I mean, aren't, I mean, it's like when we did Waking Life. I thought Waking Life was brilliant and everything, but. I'd never expected an audience to find it, and they never did. And I mean, you know, I mean, it has its like little cult status, but I never anticipated um, the emotional connection that this movie would have, particularly because of its experimental nature. Yeah, you know, I mean, and as as good as that Sundance screening felt, don't forget we also, you know, all those big shot studios were around to buy the movie and release it. IFC would have happily taken the burden off releasing the movie sure. and none of them wanted it so the thing we were hearing back was yeah genius totally <laughs> wonderful you guys are amazing keep doing it good for you you're the best but no we don't want to do it because it's not going to make a dime right and we're kind of a little used to hearing that i mean it doesn't you know the before trilogy right. has its fans and we got really great reviews and and but it never commercially was important to anybody in hollywood right, right. um so I think it's really only been dawning on those of us that made the movie to what extent it's been working now. And Birdman's another great example of this is a movie that's really adventuresome. You know, I mean and it has something to say. Mm -hmm. I mean it's and normally you know movies that are pushing the envelope on the form front it take years for people to kind of catch up to. It's just it's just normally the way it rolls. Right. And so I'm finding it kind of wonderful. And, and even to the point of like where, you know, I was, you know, in, in regards to the end of the year wrap up kind of dialogue that happens. Uh, it's interesting. 
I wonder what it feels like to be Scorsese and have made, you know, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 12 movies that deserve Best Picture and have won for a perfectly fine cop movie. Do, yes, you know, yes. No it? one's going to argue that The Departed, well, I love The Departed. Is I not, love The Departed. But, but it's not I, I, in the I top no, five Scorsese not, movies. This it's is not, not, yeah, exactly. And this is not a common design to criticize no, Departed, totally. I get it, which yeah. is a wonderful movie. I think DiCaprio and Matt Damon are brilliant in it. I mean, I, I would watch it again tonight. Yeah. But it's... Um, Goodfellas, Last Temptation of Christ, Mean Streets. I mean, there's, just, come, there's, a, there's a long list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, casino. Um, I mean, Kundun is groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, I'd, I'd get. I mean, I can give Kundun the Pulitzer. I not <laughs> give it the Oscar because right. it's not mainstream entertainment. But and so, what's I'm kind of in shock about is I feel this is my friend Richard Linklater's. Uh, I think this is probably my favorite movie he's made, and here he is getting the accolades for that. And I think that's kind of awesome. Yeah. I'm a little in shock about it. I, I thought that he would win for doing um, School of Rock 3. To, you, you know, something like, you know, okay, Rick, it's not your best, but we'll you know, give you the chump change right, prize right, right, right. for it. But people are, you know, it's fun because this year we're at, um, he just won Best Director for the New York Film Critics. And about, I don't know when it was, around the time that we were first discussing Boyhood, uh, Rick won some ancillary prize for Waking Life. It was like, you know, uh, good on you for experimental work prize from the New York Film Critics. And so, and I was supposed to give him this, you know, dubious honor. And we went there and Robert Altman was winning Best Director, right? And Robert Altman is a hero to to, uh, everybody, but Rick and I particularly feel, I don't know, our, the work we've done together is, it wouldn't have happened without all right. you know, without his, his leadership in that way. And man, it was funny. He gave the critics just, he gave them a tongue lashing. Oh, well, and it Allman was, was, oh, did was not suffer so fools. So said whatever was on was his mind. I was so proud of him. He was like too little, too late, <laughs> you know? And, and, and for this very thing that we're talking about, which is that you guys all come to the party, you know, when, when the narrative suits you when in a way. When the narrative <laughs> suits you, not when I needed yeah. you. When I couldn't get money to make a movie, when you know, when you wouldn't give you know, Kansas City the time of day. You know, now you want to give me lifetime achievement awards and awards. And I remember Sidney Lament used to say that too. I did this movie before the devil knows you're dead with him. And he used to joke, he's like, Oh, you want to win the Oscar? Let's tell everybody I got cancer, you know? And um and of course it was his last movie. Yeah. You, you know, and but he didn't. He was allergic to playing into some kind of phony narrative. Right. Like, well, just let the work be the work. And um, have you? I mean, have you fallen into that like kind of you know feeling sorry for yourself stage at any point? Because it feels like you've had you know many different iterations, many different kind of highs and lows. But it feels like you've worked pretty consistently throughout. Has it? Was there ever any period that you can pinpoint where you were like resenting? Hey, I put in the work. I should be getting better stuff than I'm getting. I'm allergic. You know, I'm also now a dad. So like I'm allergic to when the should word, you know, the should word is, uh, is like a a little bit of poison. I should get this. I should be. None of us, you know, if you get to work in this business at all, if you get to use your imagination and, uh, get paid to do it, if you get to have fun, you're, People get blinded by the minutiae, yeah. you know, by the illusion of a competition of like what what's a better, 
you know, somebody's, we were at the Gotham Awards and Birdman won Best Picture. And somebody said, I'm sorry, you guys are so much a better film than Birdman. I was like, that's so stupid. You, you, you know, there's so many. I remember a couple years ago, or maybe it was just last year, I remember thinking Spring Breakers is probably the best movie I saw that year. And that didn't win any awards. And um, tape barely came out. And that's a movie I made with Richard Linklater. And we didn't win any awards for that movie. And I know that movie was really pivotal and meaningful to me. Yeah. Have I ever felt sorry for myself? Definitely. And I've been doing this long enough that I remember watching, um, I watched Matt Damon win some Lifetime Achievement Award. And he, he talked about like the first time he was at, I don't remember if it was the Indie Spirits or the Gotham Awards or something like that. And, and he said, the first time I was here, he talked about that feeling of the, everything being new. He was there with Goodwill Hunting and how excited he was and he can't believe it was so long ago now. And I remember thinking, God, I was here the first time you were here and that was the first time I was washed up. You know, I, I was already washed up by the time, time Goodwill broke, Hunting yeah. came out. Do you, you know? And so, I've lived a couple lifetimes. Yeah, and so, yeah, I felt sorry for myself. And one of the things that I admire, I don't know, everything now, I've done so many of these interviews, everything's in the framework of my friendship with Richard Linklater. But one of the things I admire so much about him is we made the Newton boys, um, uh, a film of which, you know, didn't get one okay review. I mean, to not get, uh, we to get, not get mocked was right. kind of a positive review for the <laughs> Newton boys. And the Newton boy was totally misunderstood when it came out. Cause it was kind of sold as young guns for something. And really it was an Altman comedy, you right. know, and people, but if, if it had been sold that way and understood that way, I think people might've actually enjoyed it. Cause when we tested it and everything, everybody loved it. But the zeitgeist turned against McConaughey at the moment. Mm -hmm. He was kind of out of fashion and the zeitgeist turned against, Rick and uh, why am I talking about this uh, because um, Newton oh ready okay so he was put in director jail all the reviews were bad and Hollywood was like see he sold out and he made a bad movie guy as if New as if he didn't write the Newton boys in what way was the movie a sellout but that was the narrative yep. right that this indie darling he'd made slacker days and before sunrise this indie is like train of indie perfection right, right? went in down a miserable blaze of glory Let's see what guys, happens these guys are ready to send him out to pasture right i mean every and um and i'd go in meetings like oh yeah well see you can't really make it in the big leagues you know that's the way people talk and all rick did was go back to austin well he never left but go home and he made two of the most fiercely independent movies of his career tape and waking life both you, you know, he made for a change that you had in your pocket. And they're both groundbreaking in their own way, both philosophical, both worth watching again. Yeah. And I always feel like when people start saying I should or I should, man, you sh I roll my eyes, you know, because nobody paved the way for Martin Scorsese to be Martin Scorsese. The guy worked his ass off, you know, and and he doesn't stop pushing himself to be new and to keep uh, contributing. That's, that's what they all, all said about like Wolf last year. It's like it felt like the energy of like a 25-year-old filmmaker. Let me tell you something. If, I felt this way. I remember at the end of their career, um, was, uh, before uh, um, Ishmael Merchant passed away, but Merchant Ivory, they made a movie called um, – Soldier's Daughter Never Cries. Yeah, it was yeah. The same Chris year, Christopherson, right? Yeah, 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 Christopherson playing James Jones, the author and stuff. It's the same year that Ice Storm came out. And it was a young Ang Lee. And both the films were absolutely excellent. But 
Ang Lee, but Ang Lee was new and exciting, and Merchant Ivory had been there and done that, and everybody just rolled their eyes at a really tremendous movie that was being made, you know, and it's, I've just learned you kind of just have to weather the storm, and you kind of go in and out of fashion, Yeah, you know, um, and then Ang Lee becomes passe, oh, yeah, I've seen him, you know, roll your eyes about him, it all kind of goes around, and only you can really ask yourself if you're working as hard as you can. Are you trying to have something to say? Are you having a good time? Yeah. Y- y- you know. I'm curious, like, sensibilities-wise. So when you were a kid, like, were you – I mean, obviously your first film was, like – I think I was, like, nine or ten when Explorers came out. So yeah. it was right in my wheelhouse. I, yeah. I remember, like, the trailer for that at the right. time. Um, the adventure begins exactly, in your own backyard. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So was that, like, your – was that your cup of tea too? Because like you're, you know, the assumption always is that Ethan Hawke's highbrow, he's yeah, borderline see, pretentious. Like, like you know what I mean? Yeah, I want to take a borderline. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would just jump right in and go to pretentious. I've always been pretentious as hell. And um, but the funny thing is, I had two teachers, real, and one was Joe Dante, uh, really early, and one was Peter Weir, and um, and Joe, of course. Some people, have, I feel surprised when I would make a movie like Sinister or The Purge or Predestination or Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. These movies that I've made throughout my career, which is, well, they're just old-fashioned genre movies. They're aspiring to be John Carpenter films. They're aspiring to be um, Roger Corman movies. Um, because Joe, long before, you know, one of the things I love about Tarantino is he just kind of blasted that. In Pulp Fiction, one of the great things it did is just blast the wall between high art and low art. And he's continued to do that over and over again. That just absolutely baffles audiences. And they're like, wait, is this a really serious film or is this a comic book? Wait a second. What is this? And I love that about him. And Joe... um, Long before I'd ever heard of Quentin, Joe was saying the same thing. You know, I mean, he loved anything from Bergman to uh, Looney Tunes, you know, and Joe has a real voice as a director to the point where even my 12 year old son, who saw Small Soldiers, we were watching Small Soldiers the other day, he said, he said, God, this movie reminds me so much of The Explorers. And I said, see, this is a guy who doesn't really even know directors or anything. Mm-hmm. I said, well, it's interesting you say it. it's the same director. It's the same voice. Yeah. You know? And I've really believed in that. I, I loved oh, some of the highlights of my life are going from doing Tom Stoppard's Coast of Utopia to doing Daybreakers. Yeah. You know? Because there is no high art or low art. There's people who put thought into it. And there's people who don't put any thought into it. Right. And there's people who are trying to make a fast buck or trying to be cool. And there's people that are trying to connect and communicate. And people think that the joy, like, the joy of boyhood's success is simply the, the connection that's made. Yeah. And the disappointment that you sometimes feel from artists when you like, why I bring up tape is, man, we worked so hard and you wanted it to connect. And so if somebody comes up to me in the street and says, hey, I loved it, it, it means a lot to me because I thought we didn't connect. Yeah. You know, and and so anyway, my point is that I I think that you could make a case to be made that The Purge is as, is as good a movie as anybody's going to make about Trayvon Martin. Do you, do you know? Because if you really make it about socio political 
situation in 2014, right. you start to become some... Uh, a little preachy, a little... It, beca- it yeah. has some political agenda as opposed to actually just bringing up the issue of class yeah. and warfare and what do rich people really think about poor people and if they really do believe in the unwavering equality of mankind, why do they do nothing about it? And is it any difference between watching people kill themselves in Rwanda on the CNN while we're on our on our treadmill and clicking the channel than if we were watching it right outside the door. Yeah. To, you know, and so that's, that's the idea. The, what Joe would say, the best drive-in movies, you know, what the howling can do um, is make you think about the Vietnam War in a different way than coming home can. Sure. Do, you know, yeah, but yeah. They, they each can be valuable. And so I've always, you know, it's hard to make a good genre movie. It's really hard because the, there's a compulsion to the stupid <laughs> every turn. <laughs> Whereas, and it's hard to make a high end art film. You know, I've worked with Pavel Pavlikowski too, mm-hmm. like who's about as, you know, arty as you can get. Right. Um, have you seen Ida? I haven't yet. I've heard it's okay, amazing. You gotta yeah, see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta see it. It's, it's tremendous. And, um, and I, it, thank God somebody's making a movie that you actually need to be over 21 to uh, see. I mean, not because it has tits in it, yeah. but because it has something, something to say. sophisticated yeah. to say about politics, about sexuality, about growing up, about your spiritual life, and how those things interact. I mean, you know, yeah. most movies aren't being made for people who are asking themselves serious questions about why they're born. Right. Hey guys, time for an important message from our friends over at Loot Crate. If you don't know it, Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items that includes licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and much more. So with the start of 2015 upon all of us, the folks over at Loot Crate, decided the first crate of the new year should celebrate the geek and gaming icons of the past. So they're rewinding the clock a little bit to give exclusive items from, get this, two of my favorites, Star Wars and Voltron. And that's not all. They're also bringing you some epic geek apparel, including an exclusive and licensed shirt, so you can kick off the new year in style. Plus... One more thing, you're going to get to decorate your desk with an awesome retro gaming-inspired mashup figure. So here's the details you need to know. Until the 19th, January 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific, that's how much time you have to subscribe and get the stuff I'm talking about. 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific, you'll receive that month's crate. When that cutoff happens, that's it. It's all over on to the next month. So make sure to head over to LootCrate.com slash happy, enter code happy to save 10% on any new subscription. Get to it. Talking about the, the the differences between high and low art and where, you know, thankfully some of these genre films, as you say, can actually be well done and have been well done in the last 10, 15 years. Tell me if you don't want to talk about this, it's totally fine. But was there anything... Doctor Strange, did you come close? Oh, you got close to you. We talked about it. You helped me get that part, um, (laughs) or you got me as close as anybody could because the little interview we did. We talked. We were talking about Boyhood, and that was when Scott had just signed on for the the film. And I, you know, I asked obviously, like, "Hey, put your name in the running, man." I don't really know if I'm allowed to speak about these kind of things because, um, here's my opinion about it. For whatever it's worth. 
we're living in the age of Marvel. Marvel has a tremendous amount of power about what everybody's going to see. Yeah. They're making movies at a high rate and they're making them successfully. And there was something really exciting to me about Iron Man. To see that's a movie directed by a real director um, with a real, then Marvel's giving him a real budget with one of the great actors of my generation. Yeah. Right? I mean, how exciting what it, what it would be like to see Daniel Day-Lewis as Doctor Strange, right? So my point is I'm totally open to doing something like that. Right. There's a problem that comes along whenever Marvel's going to approach Joaquin or me or anybody who, like, is in love with acting because there's a tremendous amount of salesmanship that is now really important to a studio like that. Yeah. So it's a tremendous amount of time of your life where you're working and you're not acting. Right. You, you know, you need to sign on. If you're going to sign on for something like that, it's not like, you know, when Daniel Day-Lewis does Lincoln, right? He works really hard. He preps for that part. He works his ass off. He learns his lines. He comes to set. He gets in costume. He sleeps in an outhouse, whatever he does. <laughs> okay. He finishes the movie. Okay. He does press for a few weeks, collects a trunk full of awards, and goes home. Right? <laughs> Wash, he, rinse, repeat every few yeah, years. Right, yeah, right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> and if you, if he does Doctor Strange... You do all that, then you go on the press tour for a year, right? And then you have to be online, and you have to do this thing, and you have to do that thing. And if you don't do it, you're seen as being counter to the campaign. You're not coming in. You're not pulling in for the big win. Everybody else is doing it. Come on. Yeah, and also, let's face it, one spot. You know, if Tom Cruise goes on Jay Leno, you know how much an ad costs on Jay Leno at that hour or – you know, if he can get on Saturday Night Live, this is sure. free advertising. And so it's a bigger burden. And so I think studios like Marvel and places like that, they want to really make sure that somebody's going to play ball. Yeah. And if you have a reputation as a pretentious artist type, it doesn't work in your favor. Right. Now, I would love to work with Scott, and I have a sneaky suspicion that Scott wanted me for that too. And, um, I think there's also a case to be made that if somebody's going to put up with somebody like I mean, I can't stop talking on your show, so imagine what I'm like in rehearsal, <laughs> right? And, and so if people are going to put up with somebody like me, right, they want to make sure you're going to put asses in the seats. Right. And there's a lot of actors that will put more asses in the seats than me, you, you know? And so I have my whole life have had to fend for trying to find some balance where if you don't make people money, as a performing artist, yeah. you don't get a shot at mainstream material, being you know a relevant artist. You know you right. get relegated. You can do art. Nobody's going to take that away from me. They can't. I mean, um, that's what's wonderful about my life in the theater. You you can't you can't touch me sure. in that regard. But that does give an actor a little bit of arrogance, where. My priority in life is not to make Marvel a trillion dollars. Right. And there are people that would be really excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a and big carrot on a stick. with them. I get it. You, you, you know? Uh, so how was that for PC? That was good. I mean, you, I think you did I it. You survived. told the truth. And you told the truth. Your publicist didn't murder me or, or you. you. Yeah, so and, everybody's and happy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this. You, uh, you obviously live in New York. You've lived here for some time. Have you, mm. You've never lived in L.A., have you? No. I've never lived in L.A. either. I grew up here. I'm, yeah, I admire I like that it in here. you. There you go. Yeah. Do you have a driver's license? I do. Okay. I do. Do you miss well, driving? Like when um, you're here? Do you like... I do it sometimes. Okay. 
I do miss it. Like the one fantasy I have, like, okay, let's say, let's say I did have a meeting with Marvel, right? (laughs) Let's say that did happen and I'm on my way to the meeting and I think, well, what would it be like to be here for nine months? Right. You know, and I think about flying home and missing my kids play and I think about, you know, all the headaches that come out, the charity event you won't get to go to and okay, well, so do I put the little kids in the thing? And then I think about what kind of car would I get? <laughs> so that's basically the actual incentive. <laughs> and I think, well, I could have a really cool car. Because <laughs> in New York, if you have a really cool car, what difference does it make? You don't get to be in it. Uh, or it's going to get destroyed. Like, yeah, by, yeah, right, right. <laughs> get keyed the first time you drive your kids to school. Do you, uh, we, 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 early in the conversation, we talked about you know the, the meetings kind of and auditions thing, auditioning thing. Do you, do you pursue directors? Do you go after them at this point? I, mean, I think it should be noted yeah. that while we're speaking, there's a giant picture of Tom Cruise that I'm staring at <laughs> in your office because I keep thinking of these things because there's a guy, like I always heard about that, like Tom Cruise would like see a P.T. Anderson movie and call up P.T. and right. say, P.T., we should work together. And I, I just admire the chutzpah of yeah. it. I've never done that. I just want to note it, though, for the record, that it's not just a picture. It's not like a headshot of Tom no, Cruise I have it in my office. And it's a nude headshot. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have a picture of one of the great um, sequels of all-time history, The, the Color, Color of Money. money. Right um, you know. Scorsese's come up a lot in this conversation already. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, could you imagine... I mean, it seems like you're doing theater comes up every year. It's, do you plan your schedule around theater, or is it just sort of is it so a natural part of your philosophy? What drives you that? Like, just give me a sense of sort of how your schedule happens in a way. I don't know about. I know other people act like they have their whole life planned out, but I really do. Um, there's a line in in Boyhood that is really. I I really feel like we're all just winging it. You know, I mean, you, I choose projects so that I can have this conversation with you and still be proud of myself. I can have this conversation with my friends. And so when I remember once I felt a lot of pressure about finances in my life and I felt a lot of pressure that in, and you know, the whole world of TV is kind of exploding. And I've always been nervous about television because just quality control is so unmanageable. I mean, yeah, sure. Some people sign they they don't know that Mad Men's going to be Mad Men before they sign on, right? You, you know, if 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 P.T. Anderson comes to me with a script, I know P.T. Anderson work. I know I can read the script, and I know I want to be a part of this, and this all sounds great. Or even an, an unknown director, at least I can read. You the have script. something. So There's something. Yeah. The script isn't good, but the director's a genius. Yeah. The script's okay. The director's okay, but my co-star is amazing. You know, like there's always a balancing yeah. act you do. TVs, but TVs, at the end, they still a crapshoot. I mean, because so <laughs> much unknown for quality yeah. control, and. I felt like, all right, I'm really going to do this. And my wife was just like, you know, I really don't think you do have to do that. You know, we want, like, you got to also not just make money to pay for the kids. You have to, like, show them what carrot leads your life. And you can't tell them that they should follow their heart and their bliss when all your actions do uh, do otherwise, Right. right? And so for me... If I do a lot of plays, it's so exhausting. And I quietly go broke. And if I do too many movies, I get burnt out on it. There's a lot of promotion involved. And uh, and I also feel that the best directors, they actually don't want to direct you. They want you to be a collaborator. Right. 
they want you to come in. I mean, one of the greatest experiences of my life was getting to act a couple of days with Robert De Niro, right? Because I'd been, a, you know, everybody in my generation grew up watching Scorsese, and that was the bar. Like, ah, you don't even know how they did that. You know, De Niro comes on even and Cape Fear, and you're like, how did he do that? Like, like I know how most performances get made. I kind of figured, oh, I see how that, but yeah, I don't, how'd they come up with, and then he bit her face? Are you serious? Like, what? You know, it's yeah. amazing, yeah. right? And how do they just, well, a tremendous amount of, like, well, well, then I get the chance to do a couple, in Great Expectations, I get to do a couple scenes with De Niro. And I'm having a really okay time on the shoot. It's not so fun. Gwyneth and I are trying, but and Alfonso Cuaron is a great director, but we're just all struggling. And De Niro came to set, all of a sudden, everybody's having a great time. Because he, he didn't wait for permission for anybody to say the set is supposed to be a creative place. Right. He just started working. He came in with ideas. That? He came what if in, you do yeah. that? You know what? Nah, this tie is bad. I want to have a different tie. And all of a sudden, I remember him obsessing for like an hour and a half. In a way, it seemed crazy about what tie his character had. But what happens is it sends a ripple through the whole set that every decision we make is important. Then all of a sudden the lighting designer says, no, I think it should be a magenta, not purple. And then the, and then everybody's like, I think I should make left. And in a way that might sound crazy, but in a way what is everybody was having agency and yeah. they cared. And this energy that starts to be contagious of people thinking like, you know what? It matters. This movie matters. And so when a guy like Linkletter calls me up and wants me to do this movie, I, he doesn't want some guy to learn some lines and say it okay. He wants some help to create a world and invite, you know, movies are about a collective imagination. When you right. see The Godfather, that collective imagination of the people who made that movie, from the music to Pacino to, 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 to James Caan to the production design, you think that world really exists. You feel like you might see Michael Corleone drive down the street mm -hmm. or be at a Knicks game or something. <laughs> Do you, you, you know, it seems so real. And that's the power of great acting. Yeah. And you don't get, they don't, I, when I was younger, I thought like, oh, somebody is going to direct me to do that. Because in a way it had happened. Peter Weir did that. We had massive amounts of rehearsal. He obsessed over what our color, our jacket should be. And, and so I kind of placed all this uh, authority on the role of director. And slowly I learned that, no, the reason why everybody wants to hire Tom Cruise, for example, is because he brings a lot to the game. Right. And he elevates everybody else. Famously so, yeah, yeah definitely. Famously so. Um, before we go, and I know we have to wrap up soon. First, we have to plug some two other great projects of yours. Mm -hmm. See more, which is oh, I know yeah. a pet project documentary yeah, that yeah, uh, yeah. came very organically. It sounds yeah. like something uh, that just. Super. I mean, that that was not the idea, like to look for a documentary subject. Oh right? God, was, no! I wanted just, somebody else to direct it, but yeah. I kept telling everybody that, that they should. I tried to get Linkletter, try try to get Alexander Shiva to do it. I tried <laughs> to get different people to do it, and finally, my wife said, "You know, I think you should just do this." I was like, I don't have time to do this. And, and, um, but we slowly did it, and it was really, uh, yeah, it's one of those things you just fall into. Yeah. I mean, that's what I, and the winging it of all life. You know, you're just kind of playing this stuff as it f comes at me. Yeah. And this one, I met this guy, Seymour Bernstein, who is a, a former world class uh, pianist, played all over the world, and has dedicated the second half of his life to teaching. And, as I look back on it, I was turning 40. It was during a time period I was really worried about money. The same time I, would, I was facing issues I'd never had to face before. Um, and I realized that I was kind of probably looking for a mentor myself about how to live the second half of my life. What, what am I yeah. 
what am I going for? The the other one we should mention is this calls back to your you know your embracing of a genre. You're back with uh, some guys you've collaborated with before on Predestination, yeah. which again yeah. this speaks to like the, the fact that the three films you're promoting are Predestination, Seymour, and Boyhood. Pretty much sums up Ethan Hawke in a nutshell. Yeah, pretty right there. different. Yeah. So Predestination, this is a return uh, to this very dynamic filmmaking pair. What attracted you to getting back with them after the first? Okay, time? well the Spirit Brothers are these Australian twins that. If you haven't seen Daybreakers, it's a really crazy, weird movie. And you might think it's like some vampire movie, but it's actually much more interesting than that. And I met them, and they came, they hadn't, they'd done this one weird movie called The Undead, which I don't know if you see, but it's, 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 kind of cool they made it for about five dollars and 59 cents and they made it on their computer but it's really a head trip and very cool and i met with them and they showed me uh they had done a little mock-up of you know they, they do effects on computers so they've done a few images from reality but not reality but before sunrise of me as a vampire eating <laughs> um julie delpy amazing and i thought that was kind of brilliant like, <laughs> it was surprising to meet some comic book geeks who loved before sunrise it seemed surprising somehow, and it shows the expanse of their taste, you know. And I made this movie with them, and it was really hard. We had a hard time. It was their first experience dealing with a studio, with money, with the movie. From the time I said yes to the movie to the time the movie came out, Twilight had happened. Because I remember when I had my first meeting with them, we were like, God. It's really time for vampires we'll to come back. We thought we, we thought we were so on the cutting edge. And by the time it came out, like it was passe, right? But the movie is not about vampires. The movie's a really cool film. But I really wanted to do another film with them. And I really wanted them. There was a great pull to them after Daybreakers to go do a horror film or just something where they could make a lot of people a lot of money. And I knew that they were pretty serious dudes. And I wanted them to try to make a great film. And they came at me with this script. And, you know, it, it just floored me. I had no idea what the hell I was even reading. <laughs> and um, if you've seen the movie Brazil, for example, this movie could be a good it's double feature with Brazil. It's, it's got these ideas that originate from Robert Heinlein, and they're just amazing. And these guys, uh, Sarah Snook gives one of the best performances I feel like I've ever been involved with. But it's in a mind-bending time travel movie yeah. where you're not supposed to have great performances. I mean, if, if it were in some little indie, you know, transgender film that was kind of, you know, quote-unquote important, right. um, she would win awards. Cause but what she's done is actually better than that because to give a truly human performance like that inside an action picture is hard to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I love her and I love the movie. And... um I'm hopeful it's um, it's already starting to find a kind of fan base of some like-minded freaks. Well, again, again you just want to associate with the filmmakers that are gonna they're gonna push it yeah, in some way. Yeah. These guys are clearly out there in the best possible way. And remember, Linkletter himself even told me. I said, "Yeah, I'm thinking about doing another movie with them." He's like, "You better." I was like, "Why?" Because because you know what? You don't want to be in their like first movie that was pretty good and showed a lot of promise, and then let Keanu Reeves be in the great one. <laughs> you build them up and just Keanu keep took working it. with them. Don't let some other sucker come take you. You, you, you know, you Get brought the them credit, to the table. Exactly. Eat the meal. Um, and uh, Linklater's the smartest one in the business. I know. Um, finally, my only note, my only question is, why don't you do more comedy? I'm surprised. We we did a bit together. You were great in it. I, I feel know. like actually, I was looking at the filmography. There aren't a ton. I know. There's and not you know, a lot. You could make a case to be made that tape is a comedy. And mm-hmm. Tape's pretty funny. And I don't 
play an overtly comic character, but Reality Bites is yes. pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. And I would say I haven't done a flat comedy since Reality Bites. Is that something and, conscious, or is that just sort of the way it's what you're drawn to? You know this better than anybody, but the feeling of making people laugh is like God. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, there's nothing like it. Uh, it it's it, so I would love to do it, and um, I remember sneaking into the back. A buddy of mine and I were driving cross country when Reality Bites came out, and I just for fun I did that thing. You always kind of like it was playing at the mall. Reality Bites is playing at the mall, and I snuck into the back of the theater just to see. Like, you know, I walked in yeah. half an hour late and left half an hour before it was over. And it's the best to, like, just watch the community people and laugh at. You laugh at you being a jerk. You laugh at you being stupid. Like, I mean, there's something about Because, it, again, it's the same thing about being understood. If they laugh, they, they're connecting. It's like some weird yeah. Zen cone or something. They, they get it. Yeah. And um, I would love to do it. And I've just, frankly, never get asked to. Well, the, here's the call to arms to everybody, yeah, great comedy you, writers out there. We'll send you the uh, the bit we did as proof of concept yes, okay, good. and reality and bites. And you'll vouch for me. And, and I'll and vouch for Mr. Hawk. You, you send that as my audition piece because yes, you know, we know I'll tank it if I audition. <laughs> Can I ask you one question yeah. about this interview? Because as I was on my way over here, we were like stuck in traffic, and um, I had been forwarded some email of another interview I did and that it was apparently pretty good. Somebody, a friend of mine says to me, Hey man, this thing turned out good. Did you see this? And I, st- I watched about three seconds of it and I wanted to strangle myself. I was like, <laughs> I was like, what a pretentious asshole. And you said this thing and I just swore the to myself, you know, I swore to myself coming <laughs> over here that I wasn't going to get excited. I wasn't going to talk too much. Right, and I was going to be cool, and I wasn't going to be pretentious. And all I've done is get excited, talk too much, and be pretentious. Who wants Why? a boring non uh, guy that doesn't talk? Um, <laughs> the publicist raises her head. <laughs> well, my mission well, was accomplished. You okay. did a fine I'll job. Come in. You get me a comedy part, and I'll come back in here and be cool and removed. Fair enough. Okay. Good to see you, man. <laughs> Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.